What is up, everyone, and welcome into episode 44 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. My name is Mike Johnston from Mike'sLessons.com, and my co-host, who will be joining us shortly, is Mr. Mike Dawson, Managing Editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. In this week's episode, Mike and I will get all caught up. I was in Nashville last week doing some stuff at the tracking room, so I'll give you guys a rundown of my experience there. Also, Mike went through the Advanced Fills course on the new Mike'sLessons.com, so we'll get his impression of that. We'll also talk about compression, what it is and how it affects the sound of your drum. Our featured artist this time is Mr. Greg Wells. We'll be checking out some incredible snare drums from Mr. Ron Danette. We'll get to a bunch of your guys' questions, and as always, we'll give you our picks of the week. So let's get started. Episode 43, how are you doing, boss? Is it 43? 44, my God. <laughs> Shut is up. Is it 44? <laughs> it is 44. It really, it might be, it might be 45. No. I think it's 44. We can hey. go to iTunes and check. <laughs> Hell, iTunes is probably wrong because we're the ones that have to tell iTunes what it is. <laughs> yeah, don't trust me with that. Oh, goodness gracious. Anyway, so what's happening, man? You're fresh back from Nashville, so we got to talk about that stuff. Yeah, man. Uh, the it's, There's so much to talk about, but I think what's relative to us, I mean, the, the time itself was great and uh, getting to do, it was kind of weird because we had to make sure the crowd knew we're not filming a clinic. You are present for the filming of a video, meaning it wasn't like I was giving a clinic and then these cameras were capturing what was happening it was more like i'm performing for the cameras Mm -hmm. and you guys are present for it and so i'm gonna have to take breaks so they can change out their batteries and reload new memory cards and stuff so it was a a very different thing because it it was that's like combining the two things that you do in a way that seems a little bit awkward it was super awkward yeah and i mean i i think Everything on drum set is practiced. Everything I can teach is practiced. But my comfort level with dealing with a crowd and flowing with a situation is probably the closest thing I have to a talent. And I don't mean to sound cocky. I just I, I don't mind it at all. So I kind of look forward for I look forward to any awkward moments because those are opportunities to create humor yeah. or to create something memorable. So I honestly didn't mind it at all. Um, mine all went way out of their way and just got us greatest studio possible this place is called the tracking room and it would be annoying to list off all the artists that have recorded there but i just i i I lucked out such an amazing engineer to work with and he we're using all outboard gear so he got he really took the time we had the studio for two days two full days so he really took the time to show me like with outboard gear me asking like do preamps matter and he's like yeah let's let's record your kick with uh these neve pre's and then we'll go into these API pre's, and I'll show you the difference with no compression, no nothing, just the preamps. And I got to really hear that difference. And then he would show me, here's what it's like if we patch the EQ before the compressor, and here's what it's like if we patch the compressor after the um, EQ, and so or vice versa. And so, and I was asking, so if I'm doing this in my computer, does it matter? And he's like, it absolutely matters. Are you EQing a compressed sound? Or you compressing an EQ'd sound? Yeah, that right. absolutely matters. What order you put that in never occurred to me at all. Um, which I'm sure is common knowledge for most people. But honestly, I record my drums just enough to be able to make videos. I'm not. I'm not an audio guy. I'm more of a guy making videos, and I'm trying to get the audio to at least be at a quality where it's not distracting from the education. So, anyways, yeah. I learned a lot from the engineer there. Had a great time. Got to meet a ton of Mike's Lessons students that I've known for you know four, five, six years as screen names and as pictures on Facebook, but had never met them in person. So, Is that it was like a, a weird, like, four-dimensional experience for you? 
It's it's a double whammy because they're as famous to me as I might be to them because I've seen all of their pictures, I've seen all their drum sets, I've seen everything they've ever done. You know, I've yeah. seen as many videos of them as they've seen of me, and we turn this two dimensional screen into a reality. So when I see them, I'm like, oh my gosh, you're a real person. This is amazing. And they're you're and, taller you know, than what I thought, right? <laughs> that always happens. And uh, you know, and I always kind of, I'm like, you've probably never even seen. Like my butt. You've never seen me from the back. You've only seen me from the front. So I just turn around and spin for him. <laughs> not that, that not that anyone needs to see that, but you know, it's uh, so. Anyways, yeah, it was good. We had a great time, and I don't mean to promote the stuff any more than it needs to be promoted. But the one thing that our website does do that I'm very proud of is we attract really good human beings. So we can put um, you know 50 of us in a room that have never met. And generally, everyone's going to get along because there's not just through me, but through the Mike's Lessons family, there's been this kind of thing of positivity and just support and it attracts good people. So we had just an amazing time, man. Absolutely amazing time. Huge thanks to Meinl for putting that on and huge thanks to everybody at the tracking room uh, that recorded everything. And then that'll be done probably in a couple of weeks and you'll get to see um, the four-stage practice method in four separate videos. So I assume that'll be YouTube. Yeah, it'll be on all of Meinl's social media stuff. So Facebook, YouTube, everything. And and I'll definitely um, promote it as it's coming up because I'm, I'm really excited for people. I, I think what, I, what it came down to was a realization of people really do generally know what they should practice and what they want to practice because I think that's mostly built on your personal desires. But they just don't know how to practice. And they kind of feel like, am I doing this right? Am I spending too much time on this? Not enough time on that? So having a guideline of how to practice, I think, will change a lot of people's lives. So yeah. what about you, man? What's going on in your world? Um, same old, same old. But I did have a um, – I had a great lesson with my two beginner students uh, last night. Oh, nice. And it was kind of like a – because beginning students are really tough for me. Like I, I – Love the idea of getting someone started fresh, but I'm not really great with children. So, <laughs> yeah, buddy. Like I remember, even as a kid, thinking kids are stupid. You know, <laughs> that's so I, I have a certain difficulty just like dealing with the child brain. So it's my, but it also it's a challenge. So I take on any challenge. That's just my, sure. my mentality. That's why I, I hate public speaking. So I try to do as much as possible. You know, I can't relate to children, so I try to be around children as much as possible. <laughs> I don't know if it's just a weird self-masochistic personality, but so anyway, one of my students has a learning disability. Okay. Um, So every week it's a real struggle. Um, I mean, a half hour feels like two hours with him sometimes because his attention span is probably about 10, 15 seconds. Yeah. Uh, But so the first, when we first started, I was in a small drum studio with, you know, rubber pads on the kit and everything. And it's just really not a satisfying experience. Then I had to move over to a, a secondary room for the past month where there was no drums. So I had to have a practice pad, and I brought in oh, my Roland SPDS. Okay. Now, the SPDS was he kind of latched onto because, you know, you hit the pad, and all of a sudden a bass part starts. It's like right. he was really getting into that, just controlling, starting, and stopping. But this week we were down into the main studio where there's an actual full drum set and a bunch of percussion, and it was like, this is what it's all about, hitting the freaking drums. You can't Absolutely. teach drums without hitting the drums. It's it's shocking how many places around the country are okay with putting sound offs on the kit or having, you know, silent heads or even just having electric drums. They think like, well, this is this is it. And it's like, man, you don't understand 
what a drum set is. I would yeah. never, ever train a kid for 10 years on a keyboard, a Casio keyboard, and then send them out to play a grand piano yeah. at, a, at a recital. It's not the same instrument. Yeah, their touch the tech- would be terrible. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Just like it is when people play on an electric kit their whole lives and then play on a real kit. Yeah. Um, so, and, man, a real kit, I mean, that's, I don't want to get too hippie on it, but you know the drum. That's our first instrument as yeah. as human beings. Like there's something primal there about hitting something, and it makes it doesn't just make noise. You can if you hit it in the right way, it can make music, and it's it's an amazing thing. So I think that's awesome that you got to do that. But I also think it's a a great realization for you as an educator to realize you know what I'm going to have to have some stipulations on the way I teach because I do the same thing. I, I've I've turned down um, master class possibilities and camp possibilities because they couldn't create what I needed to teach the way I need to teach. And it's like, look, yeah. uh, honestly, you're not getting the full version of me if you don't have this equipment there. So Yeah, I mean, I was almost to the point of suggesting that to his parents that he should probably not come in anymore because we just weren't able to make any real progress. I mean, some right. weeks he would keep a beat, some weeks he would just, like, put the sticks down and go, like, grab the, the speakers and start twisting knobs and stuff. Right. But last night, I mean, it was it was exactly what you said. It was primal. He had a friend of his with him, so I gave the friend a djembe, and nice. my student was playing congas at first, and I played the drums. That was the first time that I was able to actually play the drums for him. And I, there was no Dude. directions. I just started playing, and he just right. started playing along. And all of a sudden, we were a little mini drum circle. And oh, then we would so just cool, switch. Man. So he would get on the kit, and he would, I let him play whatever the heck he wanted. Sometimes it was in 3-4, sometimes it was in 4-4. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, <laughs> it's and actually then, good for you because you have to fall. It's almost like fusion. You're like, okay, yeah, it's like free exactly. jazz. And then right? I, pay, I, then guess I we're going there. The, uh, I picked up the bass guitar, and I just followed everything he did. If he played in 7-8, I followed him. If he played in 4-4, four, four, I followed him. And it was oh, awesome. So cool. I was like, all right, this is, this is the – I'm making a connection with him just for the enjoyment of rhythm and i'm not trying to teach him anything that's abstract or or hit a rubber pad and imagine it's a drum I mean, he doesn't know what a drum sounds like how can you imagine that a pad sounds like a drum exactly was, well and, and they're just so different they're so different and I, I really hope that someday the the drum industry figures out a way to define the two so that they stop being called electronic drum sets because i just don't feel that they are you know yeah. i feel I've always called them electronic percussive devices, and <laughs> the folks at Yamaha and Roland never take kindly to that. But I'm like, I- I'm sorry, this isn't a drum. I don't know how to – there's no membrane vibrating up and down, producing yeah. natural sound. So anyways, the fact that you got to experience that, um, that's just awesome, man. Because yeah, I've cool. – I mean, the reason I've done what I've done and the way I've done it as far as having my own building, starting my own schools was because I couldn't do the – I work at your store. You decide that I can't make noise at this point in the day. It was like I, I have to control this. I have to have drum sets. And the other thing that I always do too is my studios here and at the drum lab when I owned the drum lab or when I started that school, the students never had a lesser kit than, than the teacher. We always had the same quality. Oh, so cool. if I have a DW, you have a DW. If I have Peisty signatures, you have Peisty signatures. There's never this like, well, I'm on the good stuff. And it also takes away the excuses. They can't ever say, well, if I was on your kit, right. like, no, 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 you are on my kit. <laughs> so, but then at the same time, when people come here, I have to remind them, hey, hey, this is not a music store. These aren't rentals. You're yeah. literally bashing my personal drum set. <laughs> the student kit is my kit. So, uh, well, that's awesome, man. Well, from... You being the teacher to you being the student, last week you got to try out the new website that I've spent the last year of my life working on, Yeah, and you got to be a student. So what did you do? Did you do a course? 
I did. I mean, I kind of just snooped around and checked a bunch of stuff out and just to kind of see how it all was set up. But I, I wanted to focus on one of the advanced courses and drum fills. So I did the advanced fills course, did the whole thing. Um, boy. And I was able to, um, let's see. I was the first, I, what I, here, let me tell you what I really like about it. Each, By the way, you are allowed to go full Tyler on me and just rip the slate. No, the I was going to come in and say, well, get your Band-Aids out because I'm about to cut you. No. <laughs> I'm okay with it, man. I'm, I, I, if, if we can do the honesty thing about gear, then I can take it about my business. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I wish I had some criticisms. I think it's fantastic. So you should feel very, very proud. And, and all of your students are incredibly lucky. I'm incredibly jealous of any new drummer who's getting to do this now Ugh. whereas back in my day i i was literally teaching myself i was guessing and, and checking years later if i was doing stuff right so i didn't have any kind of immediate no video content to speak of um so i think it's a fantastic site i think uh it's an incredible addition to music curriculum i think it's going to change the way that we teach drums uh and for the positive it's not um what what i knew it wouldn't be and i'm glad it's not is you just playing stuff and then saying go practice it what i like about it is that you're actually it's like a lesson with two kits so play along with me we're going to do this tempo and this is where it might hang you up or what might be challenging now let's do it again at a faster tempo um, i like that you isolate each lesson into basically one idea so you're not trying to oversaturate the student with a hundred things per lesson which i think is really important for everyone to to remind themselves as they're teaching. I was so guilty of that as a young teacher of thinking I've got to impress this student with like 30 cool things to work on for the next week. Right. And then they just don't do any of it because it's just too much. So that was awesome. Uh, what I liked about the advanced fills course was that the first few lessons were very specific. You gave a very specific pattern and a very specific approach to how to practice it. And the last lesson was much more interpretive. That was great for me because that's I wanted the interpretive stuff, but I like that you kind of forced me to do the more specific stuff first. So that was it forced me to to practice something that I I wouldn't necessarily practice that way in my general. It's just not practice. your style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think uh, I obviously teach the way that I wanted to learn, and I'm not an artistic person, so it wouldn't make sense for me to teach in an artistic manner. And I feel there's people that are natural at that, like Ari Honig, that would yeah. do it much better than me. Um, but the other thing is I kind of feel like I'm also a very normal person and a normal drummer. So I'm teaching in the way that I hope will relate to the most people. But my goal with something like that is to – I don't think you can be creative – inside of a language that you have no vocabulary for. So the goal with that course is let me give you some vocabulary, some sentences, and now go ahead and start trying to be creative. But I, I even got to see you play uh, one of the licks on uh, when you're on that giant Tama kit. Yeah, it was Rocking perfect the fours and the sixes, yeah. yeah. It sounded good, kit. too. <laughs> Sounded great, man. Well, cool. Well, I'm glad you got a chance to check it out. And uh, I talked to Brad, our developer, and Amber, my wife. And next week, we're going to have a little – I want more people 
to try the courses because the courses are the leap forward that mikeslessons.com has made. It's a very systematic way of learning. It lets you know in every lesson, are you ready to move on and press the complete button or not? And I don't know if you went through it, Mike, but we've gotten a lot of students saying that pressing that complete button gave them a rush of like accomplishment. They actually yeah. did it. They It wasn't – the same as a next button. It That's was exactly what I was going to say. If it would have been next, I would have skipped right through it. But it's mm-hmm. complete. So you got to at least be tapping along on your legs and feel right. that your body can do the lesson before you can honestly hit that button. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's there's a there's a gut check. Are you really ready to hit that button? And since that lesson is leading into the next lesson, the next lesson a lot of times won't make sense unless you really did the previous lesson. The previous lesson is prepping you. It's a prerequisite for the next thing. So um, I, I want to come up with something for our listeners where maybe all of our listeners can pick and choose a course uh, that they want to try just so they can try it out and then we'll give it to them for free because I want them to try this thing out. I'm really, I, I to be honest, this is the first time I've ever been truly satisfied and proud with mikeslessons.com. It's always been two years behind where my head was at because that's where we were at with development yeah. And, yeah. Um, and we're finally at a place where I'm like, no, this is actually the website I want to have. Okay, well, let's get out of that and move on to something confusing as all hell <laughs> to some people, which is compression. Using compression on your microphones, on snare, kick, overheads, room mics, and you've heard, oh, you got to squash the room mics, and then don't compress the overheads, and then do compress the snare. What is compression? I want to talk about it, and I want to get both mine and Mike's opinions on how we use it personally. So first, let me give you a little rundown. There's a few settings that you're going to see on your compressor plug-in. Whether you use an outboard compressor or a plug-in, you're going to see threshold, ratio, attack, release, knee, gain, makeup, output, that type of thing. So I want to give you guys a little heads up on what these things actually mean. Because if you're anything like me, you didn't look it up. You just started turning knobs. Right. And you're like, oh, that's what that does. And then if I said, okay, so what does it do? You'd be like, well, it makes it sound like that. But that you wouldn't know what the hell it did. So I want to explain it to you a little bit. And then Mike and I will jump into it more. So threshold, let's start there. That is how loud the signal has to be before the compression is applied. So that's a decibel thing. Ratio, how much compression is applied. For example, if the compressor ratio is set for 6 to 1, the input signal will have to cross the threshold by 6 dBs before the output level is increased by 1 dB. Now, that threw me way off. Mm. I thought the ratio was like 2 to 1 means you're squashing it by you know, 100%. 3 to 1, you're squashing it by 2. Like, I had no idea what ratio was. It was just a knob that I turned. So let me read that again. Ratio is how much compression is applied. For example, if the compression ratio is set for 6 to 1, the input ratio input signal will have to cross the threshold by 6 dB for the output level to increase by 1 dB. Attack, how quickly the compressor starts to work. I think that one makes the most sense as far as related to the word itself. And that just means that's a, a delay thing. When you hit the drum, how long do you want a, the compressor to wait before it kicks in and does its job? Release, how soon after the signal dips, after the compressor is applied, before the threshold of the compressor stops. Knee, this is actually quite important too. This this changes to me the tone of the drum, which is the knee sets how the compressor reacts to the signal once the threshold is passed. Meaning once the volume of your drum has surpassed what you've told the compressor to react at, how fast does it come in? So if you have a very hard knee, 
it's going to clamp down on that sound right away. And it's going to completely squash it the second it happens. If you have a soft knee, it means that the compressor will be applied a little bit more gently and more subtly. So that's, once again, that's shaping the tone of your drum. The makeup or the gain allows you to boost the compressed signal. So you're not boosting the original signal, you're boosting the compressed signal. And then the output allows you to boost the or attenuate the level of the signal output from the compressor. So that's a lot to take in. Everybody got it? (laughs) All right. See you next week. All right, buddy. Take it easy. (laughs) Okay. So let me ask you this. I'm assuming you use compression on your close mics, kick, snare, rack, and floor, or none Uh, of them? I have on all of my channels basically like a a channel strip emulator. So it's basically like a mixing board one channel virtual version so it has a compressor it has eq um, sometimes it has reverb just depending on which one i use so every channel has a compressor on it um do i not compress anything there's probably not any any channel that i don't compress to some degree um right mostly which probably we probably should define what compression is um which the simplest way is to think it takes the loudest notes, brings them down, and it takes the softest notes and brings them up. That's yeah, what a compressor I mean, does. The, the definition here that I have is compression is the process of lessening the dynamic range between the loudest and quietest parts of an audio signal. Right. Which is exactly what you just said. You just yes. said it like a human. I said it like... <laughs> Wikipedia. <laughs> like, like, no, this is music toots plus... <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, so, I mean, so yeah, if, if you played violin, you don't need compression because there's not a huge difference between when you start the note and when you finish the right. note. I could see it maybe on something like trumpet where you're going to really tongue the note hard. Yeah, trumpet. And maybe something a little softer. Guitar. Obviously percussion. Acoustic guitar. So drums, I think it's really important because not to make them sound otherworldly or different all the time, but just to make them sound like they actually do. Because when you hit a rim shot on a snare drum, the difference between the initial attack of that stick smacking the metal in the skin is huge compared to the the height of the the sustain and the resonance of the drum. I mean, it's huge. So, if you're miking the drum and only only dealing with the spikes, you're not going to hear any of the tone. Right. So, compression to me makes it more naturalized by bringing down the attack a little bit, so then the sustain can be a little bit more balanced with it. So, I use it on every mic to a certain degree. Right. And if you know how to use a compressor on a close mic, you can actually choose either or, meaning you could have more attack and less sustain, almost using it like a gate. And then you can have the opposite, which you just talked about, which is bring down the attack a little bit and bring up the sustain. You know, yeah. So if you really know how to use a compressor properly, it'll help you out with your toms when they're just sustaining too much or not enough. You can bring out the tone as well. Um, yeah. Do you have a favorite? Are you kind of a, a compressor plug-in guy or are you just kind of whatever is on that channel strip? Uh, I don't use anything beyond Ableton Live stock plugins for any okay. any of my recordings because it's just their stuff is just good and I and I once you get down that rabbit hole of of buying plugins you can you can lose all your money really fast. So man, we'll talk about it in a second. But I I was trying to learn more about our our featured artist today, and dude, first of all, I couldn't find a single drum video on Greg Wells anywhere, <laughs> but. He's quite the producer. Yes, he is. I found 480,000 videos of him showing off Waves plugins. And <laughs> and at the end of every video, I was like, I have to buy that. Right. 
that vocal mod, yeah, I got to get that. So it's only anyways, bucks. no big deal. Yeah, exactly. You buy no ten of them, and it's like eight hundred. It's eight hundred bucks. bucks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> due to our fantastic math skills, I'm glad that we both got that answer right. That was seven ninety nine. It'd be seven ninety nine, yeah, right? That's right. Uh, cool, man. Well, then, um, and then let me ask you this: Do you use compression? to shape the sound of your drums on your overheads or is it really just subtle for you uh okay so the the core of my recording setup overheads kick drum in and out snare top and bottom and the toms i only use the compression just to control it so there's not huge spikes i don't i don't generally try to go for any kind of squashing or pumping sound the mic that i put over the bass drum that that's kind of it's a sm57 it's like right where you would put a cowbell okay that's kind of grabbing the whole kit and i squashed that with a really fast attack and a and a the release just depends on the time of the track because i like to time the release of the compression to the tempo um so that squashed the hell and i eq it to where it kind of sounds like a little lo-fi and i think that is valuable because it kind of just adds a little bit of just grit and presence and it makes the recording translate really well to earbuds and small speakers and stuff sure because it's all mid-range and and you know all and not as much dynamics and then the rooms i generally smack them pretty hard because again i'm not looking for that front end attack on my rooms i'm looking to get just extra kind of power and excitement so i again i use a pretty fast attack so fast attack means the initial stroke of the drum is going to get squashed a lot so if you right. want a more sustained, a more fluffier, kind of compressed-sounding drum, fast attack. If you want more of a punchy sound, then you use a slower attack. So the initial transient gets through untouched, but then it squashes everything else. Right. So, I mean, it, it just all depends on the track. But in general, my rooms are squashed for with a, slow, with a fast attack, and the rest of the kit is a slower attack just to kind of rein everything in. Nice, man. I love it. Love it. All right. Well, hopefully you guys can check out your compressing compressor settings now and try some things out. I mean, just like tuning drums, just like everything we've ever mentioned on this podcast, tweaking things will not break anything. So just try things out. And, you know, experimentation is the key. What's great, crazy is it's almost like evolution at work where – None of us talk to each other, but we all end up after five or six years with very similar compressor settings. Yeah. yeah. And it's because that's, you know, it what kept beating good. out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it kept beating out what was lesser. It just kept dying off. I was like, sorry, monkey, you didn't make the cut. <laughs> we are going on to the next step. So moving on from that. Oh, by the way, do you want to actually, do you mind if I throw in a little audio sample? I was thinking maybe we could throw in uh, a snare with no compression whatsoever, and then I'll just give maybe two different compression settings all the way up to a squashed sound so people could really hear the difference. Yeah, so you're going to put the compression on what? The closed mic? I'm going to put it on the closed mic and the overhead. I'm going to turn all the other drums off, and then then we'll hear what happens to it. All right. All right, first we're going to start with the snare drum with no compression on. I've got my tom mics off, my bass drum mic is off, my room mics are off. I do have the overhead on, but there's no compression on the overhead and no compression on the snare drum mic. And now with a medium amount of compression settings.
And now I've got the close mic and the overhead pretty freaking squashed. Okay, so this month's featured artist is its kind of a, a slightly different angle of a featured artist for us at being in Modern Drummer Magazine, but his name is Greg Wells, and you may not know his name, but you've definitely heard songs that he's written, and you've definitely heard songs that he's played drums on. So he's co-written most of Katy Perry's big hits. He's done some songs with Pink, uh, Keith Urban, essentially the top of all top pop artists, or you know, at, at some point in their career working with him. And because he's a producer, he has a studio, He's a songwriter. He gets to play drums. He gets to hire himself, essentially, yeah. for most of his records to play drums. So he's so the angle of the story is slightly different because he's not talking drum stuff. He's talking music stuff. He's talking production stuff. And uh, so I think as drummers in the year 2016 moving forward, you, I think we have to all – I mean, we just spent, what, 15 minutes talking about compression – yeah, I mean, we're drummers. We hit things with sticks, but everyone is going to need a studio at some point. They're going to need to understand how to do this stuff. And if you ultimately want to learn or earn real income from your music, which we'll talk about with a reader's letter later, you've got to write songs. You've got to be the songwriter. Yeah. You can't just be the drummer because there's no back end return on that. Uh, right. So Greg is like the perfect representation of that. He loves vintage drums, and the, the kit in his story is. I think it's an old Radio King kit. Super jealous of it. It's gorgeous. Um, and the, I found out about him from um, there's a great website uh, video series Pensado's place. Yeah, Check of course. Yeah, he's Dave Pensado is a legendary mix engineer, and he brings in all of his friends and, and contemporaries and interviews them about recording. And he did one with Greg, and a big chunk of that interview was a tour of his studio, and he goes down his like drum recording setup. So I'll include in the show notes the link to that video because it's it's like an amazing tutorial on drum mic placement and everything else. So that's on YouTube if you want to search Greg Wells Pensado's Place, or you can just check the show notes. Like I said, if you look for Greg Wells' drummer and all that you see is a dude sitting in front of a mixing console, that's the guy. Yeah, you will. Exactly. I, I went 14 pages deep into YouTube and could not find one <laughs> video of him hitting something. But he's on everything. Yeah, you're not going to. You're not going to find him on video. It's awesome. There's so much stuff. But but just listening to him talk about his time writing songs for Adele's 21 album, and you know, sitting in a room with her while he's playing piano and she's coming up with vocal parts, to working with. I mean, going from Adele to pink to the deftones i mean the dude's just done it all it's it's unreal and he's so unassuming very very humble sounding guy and you know said that he's a a preacher's son and that he just wasn't trying to like you know run the music industry or take over the music business it just kind of slowly happened and i love the fact that he does his writing and his recording in the same place it's his studio so if an idea hits him he can just walk over to the record button and press go you know and not have to like book studio time down at larrabee east and do this and do that it's just all right well i'm here and i'm writing and now i'm gonna play some stuff now have you had a chance to meet him yet 
No, I haven't. I mean, I feel like I know him because I just I watch all of his his tutorials and videos. But right. uh, that was my good friend Steve Bellens did the story. He's down in Austin, and Steve's kind of a similar. Uh, I mean, he's a great drummer, producer, mix engineer, the same kind of vibe songwriter. So he's he and Greg are basically cut from the same cloth. So it was yeah. I mean, it's, when I was reading the article and uh, and when I was just kind of going through the videos, I was wondering how many more of these are there? I mean, there's Butch Vig, there's Greg yeah. Wells. I mean, is this, do you think this will be kind of become something a little bit more common? Cause now, I mean, if you're a kid and your parents get you a laptop, your laptop already has some sort of recording gear on it. Yeah. It would only takes maybe 200 bucks to get an interface and a single mic to start recording your kit. Yep. I mean, I could really see the Butch Vig thing not being so outlandish you know? no i mean i think drummers are kind of designed to be producers because we're you know we're in the back of the band we have to kind of balance everybody on stage we got to control the tempo we we ultimately shape the entire dynamics of the band so i think just as drummers it's kind of our natural we listen to everything so you should be yeah. producing it's the songwriting side of it that we're a little bit slow to get to yeah. which it's kind of the flip-flop of that is what makes me nervous when guys like greg who are actually very accomplished guitarists and keyboardists who oh by the way we can play drums yeah that's, so then that's start, the nightmare yeah so they don't need a drummer anymore because that's always been our calling card drums are hard it's specialized no one can really figure it out unless you spend a lifetime doing it right it's not quite the case anymore especially with pro tools now if you can just fumble through a basic beat you can create a badass loop and you don't need a drummer anymore right so if there's one call to action for drummers i would say get your piano chops and your guitar chops together because you need to start writing songs and become producers become become the drummer side of greg wells of i mean dave grohl was another guy who you know, his career is as a singer guitarist but he's one of the most important drummers of all time absolutely and i mean <clears throat> just the, my time in nashville i was asking the guys there about you know i'm looking around this studio that i'm like in the, in the 90s how much how much was this and they're like 2500 a day and i was like oh how much is it now? Now there's inflation. How much is it now? He's like, if we can get 1200 a day, that's pretty huge for us. And, and that's like, still expensive. That's crazy expensive. But yeah. this is, you know, this was probably a $15 million build out as far as the live rooms. I mean, yeah. they had an entire room of imported client, like rocks where the entire room was rocks and that was a reverb room, but it was uh -huh. the floor. It was all like a very specific stone that was chosen for this sound. And so, I mean, you know, but I was sitting there thinking like, man, now that I'm here, I kind of miss this world of like, I chose this room to get the best drum sound possible. And you can't get this drum sound, this exact sound. You can't recreate this in any way because it just, it exists in this room with those heads yeah. and those mics. And we position the mics this far from the kit. And I was really kind of worried at the time as I was doing this thing in Nashville, you know, for me, it was kind of just a refresher of something I'd already done in my 20s. I, I've, I've been lucky enough to record in some of the biggest studios in Los Angeles. I've recorded in Oceanway Studios. I've recorded at Conway. I was recording at Conway at the same time that um, uh, Santana was doing the Supernatural record. Oh, wow. So every day you'd be like, dude, is that? You know, like whoever. I mean, every day it would be like Rob Thomas from Matchbox 20. Then the next day it's Lyle Lovett. The next day yeah, it's this. Yeah. And it was like, what is going on? <laughs> so anyways, I mean, I doing this, I was like, oh, my gosh, there's an entire generation of drummers that will never know what it's like to record in a real recording studio. 
Yeah. To them, a studio will be inside of a computer at their friend's house, but they don't know how important a live room is. Yeah. You know, they don't know what outboard gear is. I mean, you know, they don't know what a patch bay is, which, I mean, I, I'm not trying to sound like the old man that needs you to get off my lawn. I'm just saying I, I felt kind of sad that there's this beautiful world out there of of studio life that a lot of people just won't even know it exists. Yeah. I know? mean, I'm next week I'm actually going into a real studio for the first time in a couple of years to do a drum track. So I'm really excited to see how much how does is it really a, a matter of this studio is what I'm missing from my home studio is just that it's not a real studio. I'm, right. I'm curious if that's going to be the reaction or if it's going to be, oh, I could have done that at home. Yeah. I'm really curious. <laughs> that's a scary thing, too. <laughs> that, there's nothing worse than sitting there and being like, I think I could have done this. You know? Yeah. Like, I mean, the guy had, I said, I, I want the most natural sound possible. We ended up with like 46 mics on the kit. I was yeah. like, He's like, it takes a lot of mics to make it sound like there's no mics on the kit. Trust me. And we went through it. So, But anyways, back to Greg Wells. Definitely check him out. Um, oh, yeah. By know. the way, he he does something really, really awesome. I think he's still doing it. He gives away drum kits on Twitter. Yeah, I saw every three months. Yeah. So it's gives like, away a kit. Yeah. And it's, I think it's targeted towards children who, who children in need. So you can kind of like nominate someone. I think they have to just post a video or something like that. So it's awesome. super cool. So he's a he's a incredible spirit check him out follow him on twitter and then you know check out the kits he's you know if you know someone who might need a kit or who you would think would appreciate it share it share it along boom greg wells all right well let's get into some candy it is time for gear review and this is like personal candy because i know that whatever snare drum i buy next it will be one from ron Danette. (laughs) that's that's there's just no getting around it i just love them do you see the new carter mclean snare yeah, he's been sending me pictures oh. all along in the process. Shut up. Oh, yeah. it's so I was I was highly jealous of that thing. <laughs> yes. Highly jealous. And I haven't even heard it. It's I was so just like slick. I just want that look. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was awesome. So you got to review uh two snares, right? The Dreamtime snares, and this is a collaboration with an Australian drum maker. Can you explain what was going yeah, on? Yeah, Paul Wary, who's uh, I don't I'm not familiar with Metro Drums, but he's an Australian-based uh drum builder and he so uses all Australian timber. And he's made some ply shells that he sends over to Ron, and Ron builds them out into these gorgeous specimens that we have for review in the July issue. And these are the exact drums that were at NAMM show uh, that okay, and, we were both and, freaking out about. Yeah, I think the the fourteen by f- uh, five and a half was the one that I actually was thinking about buying. Yep, you know from Ron at that moment. Yeah. So, but Ron is actually making the drums sound the way they sound. As far as it's him, it's he's cutting the bearing edges, he's cutting the snare bed. Yeah, all his hardware. So the only thing that's happening is the shell is being made in Australia from yep. the wood that's already there. Okay. Yep, exactly. So I mean, they're. Uh, I mean, the five and a half is the one that everyone was like, "I want that. I want that. I want that." That was the yeah. one Carter said, "I hate having to send this down to you <laughs> to review," and then I hated having to send it back. And oh. you wanted it. It just sounded so nice. They both, uh, they both sound amazing. Their Australian wood has a has a different kind of sound that. I don't know that I can precisely put into words, but it's it's fat but really powerful at the same time. Whereas mahogany is kind of like dark and soft, and, and it's never going to give you the power. Where these Australian woods, I guess, because they're harder. I mean, they they can really smack, but it's such a, a smooth, pleasing sound. So it's really pretty gorgeous combination. Um, what I did, about sensitivity? Uh, well, he puts the the really wide snare strainer, so it's like okay. forty two strands. So I mean, you're going to get snares from you know whispering on the thing. 
Right. But he also cuts his snare beds uh, pretty deep, so there's not a lot of sympathetic buzz. Oh, cool. Surprisingly. Like, I think if you just put this next to your 55 by 14 maple and didn't know the wires were different, I don't think you would immediately say this has wide strainer on it. Okay. Because it's, cool. it's got enough control. But, yeah, his super articulate. Um, I think, the yeah, the 55 had his new hoops, which are, what's he calling them? Double edge, double flange steel hoops. So it's not the triple flange, like typical rollout. It's a little bit different. It's kind of hard to describe. You just had to check out the pictures. Um, and then he put. It. It's like a rounded top. Yeah, it's it's just annoying how beautiful <laughs> everything he does is. It really is, and it's so not outlandishly priced. I was looking on uh, maybe uh, Drum Center of Portsmouth's website because they have a few of these, and. Uh, they're like a thousand dollars. Yeah, I mean, he keeps everything. He tries to keep everything under nine ninety nine when possible. I mean, you can. Get- yeah, I mean that's what they were. They were all like nine ninety nine. But I mean that's for this level of craftsmanship, and it's not just boutique because there's boutique with no trust because they're brand new. Yeah. But then there's this level of boutique, just like Craviato, where it's like, dude, this guy's been around for a while. This is an established company. It's been proven. And it's got that boutique look. And for him to have that, his own throws, his own hoops, yep. it's it's and just now he has his own incredible. snare bottom head. What? Yeah. yeah I don't, I'm not sure. It's called Crystal, I think. Yeah, Crystal. Whatever. I guess he was Whatever. dissatisfied with the Remo or in everyone else's bottom, so he had his own made. Why not? Why, <laughs> Why not? not? I got to spend time with him. I'd never met him before. I got to spend time with him at uh, the Stickman Stickman Drum Experience in Canada. He was. Oh, right. They brought yeah. him in as one of the artists so that he could talk to people about tuning drums and everything. Yeah. And God, what a nice guy, man! I mean, he, he was he really is. cool. Um, he's definitely. I, I. You have to if you're going to follow him on social media, you need to know he is opinionated, and <laughs> you're about to find out what he thinks. But I think that's kind of cool in today's social media where everything has to be so protected and so PC that he's just like, well, I don't really care. Here's how yeah. it's going to go down. I mean, yeah, and so it, he and I get along great because we both have like no tolerance for BS. So right. if you're just going to be honest and upfront, even if you're coming at me with a complaint, that's okay. It's when you give me the fake smile and then you go say some crap online about me. That's, that's when it's like, okay, we're not friends. So we get along great just because of that. It's like, I'm only going to tell you the truth and you're only going to tell me the truth and we're going to, get along fine so yeah and he's a very sincere caring person if you only follow him on facebook he might think otherwise just because that's that's his platform to just say i don't think this is true and i don't support this or but he's actually i think he's a really great guy and his drums i think speak for his attention to detail and his honesty i mean they're they're no it's just straightforward sleek beautiful drums designed to sound great designed for drummers not necessarily collectors i mean they're designed to be hit and played um, and, there, and he has a lot of guys using them, so you can't can't dispute. I mean, when Carter Beaufort and Dennis Chambers and tons of guys are buying his drums, it's the real deal. Yeah, you might be seeing old uh, Mike Johnston playing <laughs> one of these in the next couple of weeks. I can't help it. That, that fourteen by five and a half is just too freaking gorgeous. Now, you also reviewed the fourteen by seven Blackwood snare. It, yeah, it did, and that one had straight straight hoops, which are sort of like single flange, but they're a little bit sturdier. So it's a straight hoop with clips. Um, that one just sounded a little bit, a little bit darker, a little bit softer, a little bit fatter. Um, but they were both very consistent. You can you can okay. check out the demos that I'll drop in. They, it's like degrees of difference, not like night and day. Subtle sure. difference. 
That's awesome. Well, uh, without further ado, let's give him a listen. All right, so let's get to a bunch of listener questions. Uh, please keep them coming at mdinfo at moderndrummer.com. We appreciate every single one of them. And we've also been getting a fair number of just general comments and reactions and input. So that's that's welcomed as well. If you want to, if you hear something that we recommend and you've got an alternative, then please share it because we'll share it with everyone as well. Uh, the first one comes in from Matthias Montgomery. He has... Uh, his question is about what what do you do when you get a student who comes in and says they swear they could play it perfectly at home, but they just can't perform in the lesson room. Maybe they're not sure. cut out for the pressure of having to perform and being judged. So have we run into this, and what are our thoughts on how to address it? Oh, I run into it on, on every lesson. You yeah. know, um, My thought is actually this. My thought is they actually can't play it at home. Yeah, um, I agree. I, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think they can play it at home. I think they're they're tricking themselves. I think they're playing it sloppy. I think they just don't have anyone standing right in front of them to point out what's wrong. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's pretty rare that somebody has anxiety so bad that they're flawless at home and then they suck um, in in person. You know, I give them about a twenty percent variance of like whatever you do in front of me. I I assume it's probably twenty percent better at home on your kit on your comfort zone. But that's about it. But the whole like. No, I was playing it right at home. It's like, no, you, I, I don't think you were. <laughs> and if you think you were, you're more than welcome. I mean, I'm not rude about it, but it's like you're more than welcome to send me a video, you know, yeah. what, whatever. But I, I don't think you were. Um, so and usually once we start digging into it, we find out how oh, you were probably putting, you know, that place where the bass drum was supposed to go. But you're playing it one sixteenth note later. You were probably doing that at home, too. You know, because yeah. I've I've done the thing where I put on the loop that I made for them and said, okay, just do it with the loop, and they're always one sixteenth off for whatever reason. Yeah, and I said, I guarantee that was happening at home. So yeah, and and, nope. and what you said about the twenty percent worse in in the practice room. I mean, that is indicative of how you're always going to perform in the real world as well. You're That's never that Russ Miller sound, story. Yeah, you're never going to sound as good as you do on your best day in your bedroom when you're live. So you have to. If you really want to perform and, and be a musician, I mean, you can be at home and, and be a hobby drummer, and, and that's just as valid as anything else. But if you want to perform, you've got to understand that there's going to be serious pressure on you. And that's just and part variables. of the challenge. I mean, you know, you get there and everything, you have it in your mind the way it's going to be. And they say, hey, do you just mind if you use the backline kit and don't use your kit? And you're like, uh, do what? <laughs> right. And then... But you can't say that. You say, yeah, no problem. I'm and a chameleon. the throne won't go down or up, and you just have to deal with it. <laughs> exactly. It, it, that's that's the way it is. So, yeah, that's those. there's so many things that can throw things off. So I think actually going to drum lessons is part of the process. Yeah. Having to sit in front of Pete Magadini and play this thing that I worked on you know, forever, and I'm just hoping that it actually shows up on the day. Compared to, I worked on it so much, I could do it in front of Pete and five of his friends yeah. on a gig. You know, yeah. I've got this thing down. So that's what you have to do is get yourself to that point where your 80% is still pretty badass. And so. I would say invite your friends over, invite your parents yeah. and siblings in and play for them. I mean, I Dude. hated doing that as a child. But that if I would have done that on a more regular basis, by the time I got to college, we had this thing called juries where you had, uh -huh. every week someone had to get up in front of all, the entire studio and perform whatever they're working on, whether you have it mastered or not. 
yeah. talk about a pain and of anxiety that's, and distress. That's every day of drum camp now. Actually, every class of drum camp is I teach you something in the first 15 minutes. You guys all have 25 minutes to grow it into something uniquely you, and then you have to perform it in front of the whole class. So it happens four times per day for six days in a row. Yeah, so maybe he needs to get his students to do that. More, you know? <laughs> well, the other thing, too, is, I mean, I think like you said, for me, the payoff was always like once I got it down, I was like, Mom! <laughs> mom you know and i was like come in here and i'd play it and she'd pretend to be interested and i'd be like right and she's like yeah that was great honey and I, but it was like that was my payoff i got to yell at my mom or my dad and have them see what i worked on so yeah. all right all next right. next question comes from steve smith um great name i'm not sure if it's the football player or the professional drummer but it's or maybe it's a third steve smith the fact that he lives in sacramento means it's both <laughs> So he wants to know if we have any recommendations for how to achieve greater discipline in terms of adhering to an established bass drum pattern throughout a song. Oh, Do you bro. think it's okay to sometimes alter the pattern to help accentuate the vocal pr- phrase or other elements? Um, or, you know, basically he's having a, you know, a, a bass drum that just won't settle down. Sure. Well, why don't you, why don't you start? Because I know you gig nonstop. So. Yeah, that's this is something that um, I realized a couple years ago when I was I've talked about it before when I was on tour I was touring as a duo with no bass player so then everything I played became super important and super crucial to the song so and the bass drum was the first thing that I noticed was like if you do too many sixteenth notes it's just not going to sound or feel right and it's going to be distracting so I had to mentally think my bass drum is the bass guitar and I, now I still think that every single time I write a drum part. So I'm not just playing stuff that my body feels is cool. I'm thinking, what is the bass, the bass part? And then how is my foot going to execute that throughout the sections? Is there any, at any point that I should vary it or should it just stay steady? One thing that I think is to really caution people against, if you're just playing, I mean, if, if you're soloing and, and playing for yourself, that's out the window. But if you're playing pop-based music, I, I caution against using the bass drum in any of your drum fills. Keep it as a groove element and and only use it in fills for really like big moments where you want to be like, here comes a big drum part. You want to punch something, yeah. Yeah, if you're just by habit just using the bass drum in every fill, it's it's really not a good thing. That's I think that's like a professionalism 101 uh, tip there. So I would say just think think of your bass drum as its own instrument create one two four bar patterns that fit the music vary it at key points in the song that accentuate the music or the vocal make sure it doesn't step all over it or counteract what's going on in the vocal and just go from there it's going to be an independence challenge because you can't just go with what feels comfortable like if that bass drum is playing a four bar pattern and maybe the hands are going to be what embellishes the vocal a little bit that's that's going to take practice. So that's what I would say. Think of your hands as embellishing the music. Your bass drum is, is driving it. Yeah, and then, I mean, if you have a one-bar phrase, that bass drum becomes an ostinato in yeah. a very unique way, and it's tough to play over that. So you have to kind of decide, okay, I'm going to work on freedom over this one-measure bass drum pattern that's very common in pop music. The other thing, how can a bass – if you ever watch um, – Mike, do you remember those – videos where they i can't remember what it was called but it, they would go in and dissect like an old famous record i remember there was a phil collins one where they went oh in yeah and, classic albums 
classic awesome. albums. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they show these bass players. And it's like, well, how did you come up with this bass part? And it always starts with the drum part. Mm-hmm. And they go, well, this is what the drummer was doing. And this is how I played off of the bass drum. There was a little call and response. Well, they can't even come up with a part if your bass drum is not consistent. Yeah. The consistency is what allows everyone to agree on something and say, okay, that's our foundation. Now, the other thing that I think that you mentioned is varying up the bass drum in key parts of the song. Drummers, you have to know that varying the bass drum, say on the fourth bar of a phrase, that is a fill. Mm-hmm. You're changing something. So don't think that you have to hit toms to make it a fill or you have to leave the groove position. Uh, there's so many songs where on the eighth bar, it was just a little bass drum embellishment and that became the fill. And it's it was Matt very Chamberlain tasteful. And Steve Jordan right there. That's what <clears> they there you do. go. Yeah. Awesome. Well, there we go. Next. Oh, yeah, next. Oh, yeah. I was also going to say he should probably get a bass guitar and put himself in the other side of that equation. So yeah. learn a little bit of basic bass guitar and then play with some drummers. And you'll see when they keep it steady, it's a thousand times better than a guy who's playing fills every two bars. Yeah. <laughs> it is tough. Though. I will say this. He's probably singing the song in his head. And that's when your bass drum starts to follow the vocalist. Is You, you actually become a fan of the song while you're on the drum set. And you can't help but follow it instead of realizing your role as the foundation for the song to be built on top of yeah um it's it's really hard for me to play my favorite genesis songs and play the drum part because i'm i'm so i'm not a fan of the drumming of genesis as much as i'm a fan of the songwriting so okay. i'm actually following phil collins's vocal line it's hard for me to not play that because that's what i'm singing in my head so yeah. i fully understand where he's coming from yeah it takes a lot of restraint to let stuff go to just let it go yeah. by. You don't need to yeah. accent that guitar part because they're already doing it. <laughs> you let don't it go. need to just hit every... push your shopping cart right past the candy aisle. You don't need it. It's not going to make your day any better. Just keep on going. Oh, All right, next. So this this isn't the question, but it's just a follow-up. Uh, Michael Bertolino, we talked. I talked about using a tennis ball to rub out uh, muscle soreness, and he said someone recommended a lacrosse ball over the tennis ball, and I guess because it's firmer and maybe smaller. Okay. And he says it's a night and day difference. So he, if anyone's having extra shoulder pain, get yourself a racquetball. Um, that's what I said. Lacrosse right? ball. A lacrosse ball. A lacrosse ball, not a racquetball. Be not messing a racquet with that racquetball. Uh, let me also find – sorry, let me find something else. We had um, – we reached out to Joshua Lehman who had done all of the uh, – uh, what do you call it? Physical therapy stuff. And yeah. so um, here's – he actually wrote us um, a full response to that. So real quick, just can you recap what you were saying to do uh, a couple episodes ago? Yeah, so basically for, you know, if you have tight shoulders, which every drummer does, um, you take a tennis ball or in this case a lacrosse ball, put it inside of a, of a tube sock, you know, just roll it over your shoulder and then press up against the wall to kind of just work through the tight spots. All right, so he says, this is Joshua Lehman, and uh, he said, uh, so here's a brief and simplistic answer. It could get very con- uh, convoluted and controversial, as the research on this is still very inconclusive. The old sock and tennis ball trick, this, is, uh, um, this and other similar methods are some of the most widely used self-manual therapy techniques in the health, health industry. It is similar to the foam roller that Mike Johnston mentioned in the podcast. It is called trigger point release. Finding a knot and pressing on it or rolling over it for about 60 to 90 seconds is common practice, and there are many hypothesized mechanisms of action. Two of the most common include pain feedback, inhibition, and myofascial release. God, I hope I'm saying that right. 
though a lot of research is still needed. Um, and then he says, finding an area of soreness or tightness and rolling or pressing a tennis ball, squash ball, or anything like that is a good idea. And if you limit it to once or twice a week per max, you'll be completely fine. If you do it too often, you can actually start to bruise a bit and may actually get sore in the long run. But otherwise, you're not doing any harm. When you release the pressure, it will likely feel much better, similar to rubbing your knee when you bump it. Uh, due to dull pain. It is also hypothesized that the muscle and the fascia, the tissue around all of the muscle, actually connects the muscle to one another, can relax and regain its elastic properties. Wow. And he's and he even included references. So I'll forward all of this to you, and we can put the references um, from strengthconditioningresearch.com on our podcast notes. Beautiful. Take that. Take that. And Michael also wanted to let us know that he bought one of Masters of Maple's Black Ugly Snares from hearing it on our show. So, Sai, you can send me my royalty check, too. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Very good. Congratulations. That's a beautiful drum. I, I, I love it. I use it often. So, All right. Let's try to get one more in here. Okay. This is also a pretty quick one. Uh, This comes from Dan. Lonsdale, he wants to know what our thoughts are on the Sonar SQ2 kits, if we've ever played them. He's thinking about replacing his DW Collector's Maple kit with an SQ2. So ah. I reviewed an SQ2, I don't know, a decade ago, and it, I still remember it very fondly as one of the best kits I've ever played in my life. And it was a birch kit with like a tiger stripe on the inside and some sort of blue, amazing stripe on the outside. So I would say keep your unless you need to sell your dw kit i would say keep your maple kit and then look at an sq2 birch or beach something that's going to give you a punchier uh contrast to your your classic maple sound yeah the if you're going to get an sq2 maple i would say you're probably getting just a little more warmth than you have out of your dw right now but it's going to be somewhat similar there the quality on the sq2 is unbelievable unbelievable i think um you know, it was definitely when it when I was leaving DW after 14 years, and and I'm still a DW hardware, so I, I love everything they do. Um, but when I was leaving DW and moving, um, it came down to Gretsch and Sonar. So, uh, so yeah, it just the the SQ2 is absolutely fantastic, and I think like like Mike said, if if you have to sell your DW, then I think really what you're doing is. You're just kind of saying, look, I've had my DW for a while. I need something in that same quality level, but I just want something different. And that's fine. I've gone through that plenty of times. Um, and it will be slightly different. But or but if you can keep your DW, then you know, Beach is kind of that in-between Birch and Maple. Uh, Birch is just going to give you a little more volume ceiling, and it's just uh, faster decay generally. So uh, I think – but. An SQ2, man. That's Gorgeous. that's up there with one of those dream kits. Yeah, They're they amazing. were my dream kit all through high school and college and everything else. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Very nice. All right. All right so Do you have a letter you want to read for yeah, us? Yeah, I want to end this section with a couple weeks ago we had Finn McLean or McLean, I'm not sure how you pronounce your name, sorry, Finn, but it's probably McLean. He wanted to know if he's missing out on royalties because his band is getting songs played on the radio, but he's not credited as the songwriter. So uh, he did, he had a question, and I sent that question over to Paul Quinn, who is a entertainment attorney, and he represents several top drummers in our industry. So this is something that he deals with often. Um, and he got back to me with a, a pretty lengthy, detailed response, so I want to just read it. So 
It says, uh, this is a great question, one that gets to the heart of the drummer royalty dilemma. You mentioned that you do not write the melodies. I should have mentioned that Finn does not write the music. He, he's just the drummer. He writes the drum parts. So you mentioned that you do not write the melodies or lyrics, and that therefore, despite writing the drum parts, you are not credited as a songwriter. As I suspect you know, it is the ownership of the copyright that generates royalties, and all that you can copyright are lyrics and melodies. That's the part that's heartbreaking. Right. You cannot copyright your drum parts just as they stand. Accordingly, absent any agreement with the songwriters, you don't share the copyright and you don't receive royalties. Legally, therefore, the copyright regime does not recognize any drum part as being worthy of royalties. Oh. But, but what is not recognized by law can be recognized with an agreement. So you can always advocate to the songwriter or songwriters that your drum part is an integral part to the song that it changed the overall vibe, that it added significantly to the dynamic, or that what you wrote on the drums led to some sort of change in the melody or even lyrics. Um, so as a result of that contribution, you can request that you receive a percentage of the copyright. Um, he says you should definitely negotiate that before the copyright for the song is filed. Um, and remember that the songwriter has no legal obligation to give you any share of the copyright. Um, so just make sure you have a strong case when you approach them. Um, it says, one other thought, it is not uncommon for a band to share copyright equally among all members. Every band that I've been in, that was like a band, not just a, a songwriter and supporting cast. That's been the case where it's just right maybe you get 50 percent and we divide up the other 50 percent or it's just even across the board quite frankly none of my bands have generated any royalties to speak of anyway so you're, you're cutting up pennies really um so it's not uncommon to do that um or you can do it by song by song basis um but regardless if you're able to can you know plead your case and get them to agree to give you some of the writing make sure the contract is written and signed on paper. Right. Because you never know. It could blow up and the song could sell a million copies and then then who wants to give you the share of that chunk of money? There's That's... nothing to fight about when you're failing. Yeah. You know, as far as splitting royalties up. But, man, I mean, my I think it comes down to how you write. You know, I, I've been in my, my one band that had a major label deal. We wrote only we only wrote together as a foursome in a room so even though i never contributed a single melody i was always probably 70 percent responsible for arrangements because i'm the one sitting back listening and going like yeah. man we're in that chorus way too long we got to cut that in half so when it was time to sit down with our lawyer and talk about royalties she just said look how do you write and we told her and she said i'm going to tell you right now even though some of you are going to feel like you're owed more just to not fight i would just do 25 25 25 25 just split it equally because you guys all write together then i was in the, my next situation was a guy who was literally delivering me finished songs with drum parts and everything and all i had to do was recreate those drum parts i would never expect 25 percent of the writing yeah. for that i didn't write anything he, he even wrote my drum part for me yeah. so i think it just comes down to some fairness and um the other thing is just hope that your band doesn't hear that you're writing into us wanting more like because that's going to start a huge fight like dude did you write into a lawyer to try to get more royalties from our radio play like what you're weird no 
That's a totally different guy. But now that you brought it up, I think I deserve 25%. Yeah. And Paul so. went on to say, make sure, you know, regardless, you need to be registered with a performing rights society to get any kind of royalties. So make sure yes. you go to BMI, ASCAP, or CSAC and set yourself up. It's not too expensive, and it's pretty simple to do. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, one of the guys I play with the most often, I mean, he's like, I mean, I've known him for 15 years. He's, a, he's an old friend, but... Because he's a songwriter, he produces everything, he basically delivers me so- similar. I mean, sometimes when I'm recording, I, I do my own parts, but in general, he's he's controlling the whole thing. I just sign uh, agreements from the very beginning that he'll just pay me for the recording, and that's it. Which, would, for some people, that might feel awkward, but I'm like, I'd rather just, you give me this X amount of money, and then whatever you make on the back end, it's your song, right. it's all you, I won't come chasing you down. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's, I mean, it's its a gamble. I mean, we I do that with uh, Dave McKay, the guy that writes the playalongs for us. When he's writing a playalong, we have, he has an option in the beginning, which is, okay, well, it's, it's kind of a, a dual thing, but I say, you know, if you want this to be a, a an upfront thing, like a clinic track for me, I'll just give you this amount of money, but now I own this track. But if you want to gamble that a lot of our students are going to download this track, then well, then you don't have to pay me. I mean, I don't have to pay you anything. You just give me the track for free, but you get all of the royalties from it. So it's kind of like, do you want the money up front or do you want, which which does have a cap. It will stop at this very specific amount of money. Yeah. Or do you want the next six years of people buying the 3-2 Montuno play-along? You know? Yeah, so, it depends on I, how you want to collect. I mean, if you want to just get exactly. it all at once or do you want pennies every couple of weeks? Or In a musician's life, it actually depends on how your life is at is at that exact moment. Yeah. Like, dude, I can't make rent. I want the 500 bucks now. Exactly. It's like, okay, you might be missing out on 20000 to get that 500 but it's just where your life was at that moment. So, all right. Well, we will get to more of your listener questions. We, we're, they're starting to pile up on us. Please keep sending them in because we love them. We love the comments. But we're thinking about maybe just doing a listener question episode of the podcast because we need we have about 15 that we need to bang out. Also, guys um, – Mike, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I finally went and checked out the reviews on iTunes. Yeah, dude, thanks, guys. Yeah, pretty awesome. That was awesome. It was like, I, I mean, like it made me actually. I was like, oh, we gotta take this podcast a little more seriously. <laughs> These people like no, it like, means something no, to people. <laughs> okay, fine. I will not take speech lessons. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you stop smacking your gums. I'm I'm down to like two to three sniffles per episode. We're getting good. All right, let's get into our picks of the week and get out of here. What is yes. your pick of the week, sir? Mine is super simple and is actually recommended by a listener, Edwin Chisholm. He sent a whole bunch of, you know, he sent a nice letter about the show. This was back in uh, a couple weeks ago, but and he had a bunch of recommendations, and one reminded me that I the Gibraltar Quick Release Hi Hat Clutch is probably the coolest, most significant, uh, overlooked invention in the past few years. So I th- I'd mentioned in the past that I used the uh, the what are they called the clips the uh, pinch oh, yeah. clips the pinch clips. I use those at home in the studio because you just squeeze it and you can take the hi hat off in, in two seconds. But I'm reluctant to take them on the gig because they're thin metal and I, metal, i'm afraid yeah. with the intensity of a live gig stomping on the foot extra hard it might just blow it up but the gibraltar quick release clutch it does the same effect you just turn it once and you can just pull the hi-hat apart you put it back on turn it on lock it so that's a great piece that i think everyone should probably get just keep it in your symbol bag or your hardware bag whatever and knowing gibraltar it's probably under 20 bucks yeah i mean it's it, yeah exactly you right. can never have too many hi-hat clutches i think i have never. one in every every stick bag <laughs> it's yeah it's bag. it's how funny is it how insanely useless 
a $250 hi-hat stand is unless you have the clutch. Yeah, right. I mean, it's useless. You get duct taped it, but it ain't going to work. It's nothing. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's useless. Awesome, man. Well, everybody should check that out for sure. All right, my pick of the week this time is a documentary. I'm always watching as many documentaries as I can for inspiration on multiple levels. Sometimes the subject matter is inspiring me, and sometimes the actual filming of the subject matter is inspiring me uh, because I want to make better videos all the time. So this one is called Apex, the story of the hypercar, A-P-E-X. So this thing, now there's supercars and then there's hypercars. These are cars that kind of go for around $400,000 up to about a million dollars for the car. The people that own these companies admittedly say in the documentary it is absolutely silly. There's no rational reason for anyone to buy one of these cars. This is a purchase of pure passion to see what a human being can do with an automobile. Uh, guys, if, if if you don't actually know me person, personally, you don't know, but I'm not into cars at all. My family owned a racing team when I was growing up, so I spent my life at Laguna Seca Racetrack and Sears Point, which is now, now called Infineon Raceway. So I grew up around cars, and I re- just rebelled against it. Um, the reason why I have an electric car is because I don't know anything about cars. I don't know what an engine is. I don't know what a carburetor is, and I don't want to know. So I'm not recommending this because I'm into cars. I'm recommending this because the people that own these companies, uh, like Pagani and McLaren, these are the most passion- some of the most passionate human beings on the planet, and they are obsessive. And anytime I can find greatness, I don't care where the greatness came from. I want to know more about what made these people the way they are. Why are they so detail-oriented? Why do they push the envelope and they can never sleep? I mean, these guys are billionaires, but yet they still wake up every morning at 6.30 a.m. to push the envelope. And I want to know why because I know I can apply it to my drumming and I know I can apply it to my teaching. So even if you're not into cars, just check out this documentary. It's called Apex, the story of the hypercar. You can get it on iTunes. I've seen it on uh, uh, NBC Sportsnet a few times on TV, and then I eventually bought it on iTunes. And uh, it's just, like I said, it's just inspiring to see perfection done at that level it's pretty insane so there you go nice fantastic all right well that wraps up episode 43 44 45 i'm just gonna cover all my bases right now you guys can always keep sending your questions into md info at modern drummer.com and we will do our best to get to them and like i said we are gonna have to catch up because they are piling up but we love it and we're just so happy you guys are listening so everyone have a fantastic day mike i got a camp starting on saturday buddy Good luck. <laughs> so when I talk to you next Thursday, I will be wrecked. It'll be a yeah, nice. It'll be man. you'll have to do the rundown and you'll have to carry the entire podcast on your own. And I'll just be I'll probably just send you a, a sample that goes, Yeah, man. And then you just put the yeah man in wherever you feel like I should agree just, with you. Just don't slip and hit your head on the floor again. Don't dude. <laughs> you know how many letters I got about that? Uh, you really should see a doctor. You know it's not normal to pass out from pain. Why can't we just admit that I'm a sissy? Maybe the pain wasn't that bad. I just was like, ow, and then I passed out. All right, everybody, have a fantastic day. We will see you soon. Later, buddy. See ya.